Welcome to episode three of the Protected Cropping Podcast. On today's episode, we're speaking with Andrew McElwain from Green Camel. Beautiful. Thanks, Adam, and I appreciate you having me on. Now, I'm Andrew McElwain. I've been a grower for about eight years now, so this will be the eighth year of, of growing. I primarily focused on tomatoes. Um, my background was conventional hydroponics, where I grew large trust tomatoes primarily for, for Coles Australia, and that was when I used to work for Sundrop Farms. A few years ago, I was looking for another challenge and I moved over to New South Wales where I joined Green Camel. Um, Green Camel is an interesting company, which I'll tell you about soon, but we we focus on organic produce. Um, so we use some of the principles from protected cropping um, and some of the principles from organic growing, combine those together to uh, to produce premium organic produce. So I, did, I moved away from conventional hydroponics about four years ago, but I'm still in tomatoes, cucumbers, and we dabble in some raspberries and blueberries as well. Amazing. Now, you did mention Green Camel. It is a very, very interesting setup. So in a nutshell, can you quickly run through all of the amazing things you're doing? Sure. Um, so we, we integrate a few technologies from different sectors. Um, we traditionally were an R&D-focused business. Um, so the business started in 2012, and the whole concept was around how do we produce organic produce uh, in a way that was integrating some technologies together um, and and producing our own soil-based growing and our own fertilizer on the site. So in the early days, we were playing around with things like vermiculture or worm units, uh, but now we primarily focus on aquaculture. And like I said, we take principles from the organic industry as well as principles from the protected cropping industry and introduce those together to produce premium produce. Um, we're currently supplying into the major retailers. So most of our produce goes through into Woolworths and into Colts. Uh, we supply a little bit into Brisbane and Sydney markets. Our three main produce lines are large trust tomatoes, baby plum snacking tomatoes, as well as um, snacking cucumbers branded as chicks. Um, we are partnered with Perfection Fresh Australia, which gives us access to their, their brand of cukes. So there are three main product lines. Our aquaculture system on site we supply about 40 ton a year of live fish into the sydney markets and they generally end up in restaurants sold as, as live fish um two species we've got barramundi as well as murray cod on site but probably the most interesting part of our system is we use our water twice and we view waste as a valuable resource on site what do i mean by that anything with a higher ammonium content, a higher protein content or amino acid content, we will find a way to use either aerobic or anaerobic digestion processes. So utilizing beneficial bacteria to take it from a complex form, which is non-plant available, we'll break it down and we'll use that to create our own fertilizers on site. Couple that with our soil-based growing system, which is what organics is all about. There's a key focus on like living healthy ecosystems and, and soils. We've got composting on site. So all of the waste materials we pull from the glass houses, talking tomato, leaves, cucumber leaves, uh, all the excess fruit all gets composted down. Um, we do take in some waste from local abattoirs and sawmills, things like wood chip and sawdust, blood mill, bone mill from the abattoirs. Um, and that will feed our compost system, which then feeds into the soil. So there's two complex systems going on there, all geared around providing nutrition to our plants, uh, which means we don't rely on any synthetic fertilizers. Wow. 
that is an incredible and complex system and it must be a, an interesting one to get your head around day in, day out. Yeah, there's a lot going on inside. I mean, we've got we've got a fantastic team here. So all of us bring our own specialties. Uh, we have soil scientists, microbiologists, guys with growing experience, um, guys who are aquaculture technicians. Um, and between all of us, we can keep all the balls rolling because there's a lot going on. It's a little bit more complex than typical hydroponics. Yeah, definitely. So when we're talking about managing water and fertilizer in a traditional hydroponic system, you know, we do our titration tests and ECs. That obviously goes out the window when we're talking about all the complex systems that you guys are running through soil and, and all the rest of it. If you can do it simply, how run us through a water flow for the green camel setup? How does the irrigation flow through? Yeah, good question. I'll start at the water source, and that's yeah, rainwater, which we hold in dams. So we, we capture and we harvest water off the roofs or from the surrounding site as well. Um, so fresh water comes in from our dam if we need to. If we're running well on dam, we can access town water, but it's much more expensive. That'll flow into the aquaculture system. Uh, we generally hold about 100,000 to 150,000 litres of water in that system. Uh, there's 48 tanks in total. We're generally holding about 22 to 23 tonne of biomass in fish species. Um, so fresh water is coming in. As we're feeding the fish throughout the day, they're excreting into the water. Now that comes out in a high ammonium concentration, so NH4 negative, um, which is in small quantities available to plants, but generally not in a plant available form. Um, and high ammonia is also toxic to fish. So we generally like to rub less than one part per million of ammonia in our aquaculture system, which means we need to treat it. Um, it's a recirculating aquaculture system. It's pretty standard in terms of the aquaculture industry, how we'll treat that. But we essentially use biofiltration, um, which is a aerobic digestion process or um, aerobic bacteria using the nitrification process to convert that from ammonia into nitrites and then into nitrates after that, which as you'd know, is then in plant available form. Uh, we then take that water and transfer the solids from that into things we call mineralizers, which are responsible for essentially breaking apart and steam mineralizing all of the, uh, I guess, effluent and breaking it down into smaller and smaller components. We can then draw upon that water when we need to supplementary feed our crops. Now, I mentioned it before, soil growing is a huge part of our business. So the, the first step is ensuring that we have a healthy, diverse, and nutrient-rich soil. Um, you'll hear us talk quite a lot about good bacteria and bad bacteria, same with fungi as well. So we need to ensure that our soil is, is a live mixture. It's quite different to a hydroponic system where you'd have an inert or, or a dead growing medium. That soil-based growing with the supplementary feeding from our aquaculture water or the inverted water is how we supply the nutrients to our plants. What an incredible system to get your head around. And it, as you say, it's very different from the way we, we manage traditionally. In terms of the soil, you mentioned that's obviously a big part of the organics program. How does that look in the glass house? Is that in ground or is it in troughs or trays or how does that actually manifest? Looking at the organic industry, there's quite a few different ways to do it. You, know, you, you can look at organics globally as well, and there's, there's quite a few different methods. Whatever suits your system, really, and whatever your crop requires is, is how you gear that. So you could either do that directly in ground with the glasshouse structure around that, 
or you could be growing in a container-based or a trough system like you indicated. Uh, here on site, we use a container-based system. So we're in, uh, to give them like 30 litre pots, essentially, um, where we will bring our ready-made soil into the glasshouse. The beauty of that is we can then do a full cropping period through that soil. And, and by a full cropping period, we run our tomato crops, for example, for full length as the conventional guys would. So we'll aim to do 42, 43, you know, maybe even 44 weeks of harvest. Um, but generally we have a crop in the glasshouse 50 weeks of the year and then you know, two weeks of, of pulling it out. During that crop changeover is also an opportunity for us to take the older soil out, put it back into the composting system, add some of those valuable nutrients back into it and then recycle it ready for another season. And we'll generally add a couple of other resources in there as well. But it's all geared around ensuring that we have enough organic material to feed the microbes that are present in, in our soil. Yeah, that, that what an incredible system. And as you say, it's it's really is that circular system and trying to reduce any, you know, waste products. And as you say, putting all of that amazing nutrients and biomass that has accumulated over your forty week growing period back into your soil is, is so important. It's so great to continually build that soil and build that that really um, valuable resource. Have you seen over time the soils improve as you continue through this process? Absolutely. And this is a key part of our organic management plan. Like every organic farm in Australia, we we have an OMP, we call it an organic management plan. And the idea is that let's say you take on a, a fresh piece of land that may have been degraded over years of conventional farming. Now that could be broadacre or, or livestock. The idea is in, yeah, in the first couple of years, you're going to be putting a lot of inputs back into that soil, organic material, for example, which can be expensive, especially if you're buying in organic compost. After a few years of continually adding to that soil and, and, and building up the organic material and feeding the microbes and feeding the bacteria and feeding the fungi, it starts to pay you back. And, and you have reduced inputs eventually at you know, four or five in your mark, for example, for broad acre guys. And you talk to some of the old farmers in the organic industry and, and they'll tell me about in the early days how much effort they put into their soil and, and now each season it's just paying them dividends essentially and, and, and that's all just down to you know, really embracing um, the ecological processes that happens naturally in the soil. And that's that's the idea behind the cover cropping movement. And even in the conventional agriculture space, we are seeing transitions to supporting soil microbes and increasing that OM in the soil as, as a valuable resource for them and protecting their soil assets moving forward. So it's incredible to see that idea and that sort of broad acre organic thinking brought into the greenhouse and the glasshouse. I think that's a really interesting place that you guys are playing in i mean i mentioned before my background is conventional hydroponics and it's common for us to be dealing with root borne diseases for example you could be talking pithy of phytophthora fusarium um there's quite a few cucumber root borne diseases and since i've moved into the organic sector and, and been growing in soil for four years i'm i'm actually shocked at how little pressure we have from root borne diseases you know usually especially if you're planting in summer you'd be dealing with some pythium on tomatoes, for example, because of high root temperatures. Uh, yeah, we don't see that in the organic system, and we attribute that to just how live our soil mixture is. So it's filled with all your beneficial bacteria, the same stuff that you would you'd buy in from chemical companies who are doing um, sort of like soil additives, like your bacillus subtilis, or it's already present there in our soil in, in high numbers. So it's essentially out-competing 
any of the the nasty pathogens before they can even get into the soil. Yeah, and I'm sure that composting process that you're going through will help sort of build that resilience in the soil to some of these diseases as, uh, as it sort of ferments and goes through its composting process. So one incredible um, system. In terms of, say, we've got a traditional sort of hydroponic grower thinking about dabbling into the organic space, what sort of tips, tricks, processes have you learned along the way to help ease that transition in? Like, the organic industry is, is very supportive of growers who are converting over and there's a lot of resources and there's a lot of help there for for growers who are looking at the idea of sort of converting. There's a couple of things. So the first one is to gain a thorough understanding of what organics is first and, and to really align yourself with that method of growing and if that will suit your business, any business model. You often hear growers talking about market opportunities and being able to identify a market opportunity. So if, if you're at a product at the moment, which you see there's a, a lacking supply of the organic version of that, then I think absolutely find a place in the market for it. But certainly identify market opportunities um, and go into it with that as, as your first first point of call, I'd say. Um, there are now, after probably the last four or five years, segments of the organic market that are getting highly competitive, which is different to say 10 to 15 years ago where there wasn't much competition. The third aspect would be developing an OMP like we are talking about it before an organic management plan. And that is a method or a plan to manage the land you have for the long term that's aligned with the organic principles, like we are talking about of, of increasing the biodiversity of soil before. Um, and there's a, there's a key part of the conversion process where to be certified organic, that land needs to have been operated under an OMP for a period of three years. Now, I think there are some um, variations to that, but three years is pretty common where there can be no introduction of synthetic fertilizers or use of pesticides on that land for a period of three years. After that is when the certification can be given. Now, the organic industry has recognized that can be challenging for a lot of growers, and they have brought about the process of e-conversion certification. So that is available for growers who are in that process of transitioning from a, a conventional method of farming where they're utilizing synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, but they're in the process of converting or an organic management practice. Um, and that certification will still allow them to get a price premium on their product. Not as high as an organic um, premium, but there's that support there from the organic industry to get growers to, to convert over. And it's something certainly worth looking at. I know there's in conversion blueberries in my local supermarket at the moment. There is a time frame, and I think that's where a lot of people get scared off is that they feel like it's this big, long lack yep. of income for three years before you can transition, and how do you manage that? So it's it's good to hear that there is that sort of in-transition mm. framework that we can go through, and it's so it's not all or nothing. Another common approach is to put a portion of your land under an OMP for a number of years. So let's say you've got... I don't know, three hectares of, of cultivation area as conventional at the moment, but you might have another five hectares of unused land. We'll put that under an OMP before you even start to crop on it, for example. And then don't use any pesticides on it. Run it under an OMP. And then when you're getting closer to well, that's where you can start to, to cultivate on that land, for example. I've seen that and heard about that before as well. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned there around the use of synthetic pesticides, and that's one of the core fundamentals of organics is the, the lack of pesticide use. 
Can you talk us through your IPM strategy or how you deal with pest and disease in an organic glasshouse? Yeah, sure. I mean, the way we operate the glasshouses here on site at Korean Karma and that, the whole of our facilities, there's only real two differences to conventional hydroponics. And one of those we've spoken about already, and that's the provision of nutrients being from the soil rather than from an um, uh, inert media fed with fertilizer. And the second one, of course, is, is what we're talking about now is integrated pest management. How do we deal with pest and disease? We have a very complex integrated pest and disease management program on site, but it's not dissimilar to what you see in the conventional space as well. So we we would rely quite heavily on prevention rather than a curative approach. Uh, and one of the reasons why we started to look at protected cropping in the early days was the benefits that putting your crop under a protected structure can offer to you, not only from the reduction of pests and disease, but also uh, the protection from adverse weather like hail and high winds, for example. But for us, the benefits of having a glass house securing our crops or protecting our crops with netting on, on venting, strip-proof um, mesh, essentially, um, is, is huge because it keeps all, all of those pests out. Then we only have to focus on ensuring the pests are not coming in either through from our nursery um, or from our team members entering the glass house, for example. So prevention is key for us. Cultural, physical, biological, and chemical controls are certainly options we have. Now, when, I, when I'm talking about chemical controls, we do have access to organically approved chemicals. Think of them like soft chemicals, oils, soaps, uh, wettable sulfurs, biological fungicides, biological insecticides, where they are contact required. So they're non-systemic chemicals, essentially. On the, on the biological point of view, we, we like other conventional growers, will utilize parasitic wasps or predatory mites, for example, probably to a higher extent. I imagine I'll have a higher budget for beneficial conventional glasshouse growers. Um, and scouting for us is, is key. I would spend per square meter per year much more on um, the number of team members scouting and identifying pests and disease than, up, than let's say a conventional farmer would be. Because for us, it's key that we catch something early. Okay, if we can find two spotted mice when there is just a few feeding marks on top of a tomato leaf, so well before the stages you get to the point where your plant is webbing, um, we'll have a much higher success rate of releasing beneficials and, and getting that under control before it uh, gets to a point where yeah, we would be able to bring it back. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the keys with using beneficials is that you you need to be forward leaning in in your application you can't wait till there's a huge white fly problem before you release your beneficials you've got to really be on top of it and scouting is key think of beneficials as a, uh, a preventative measure that we're already releasing things like incarcia formosa and arachnoceros wara well before we'll find any white fly scale with the glasshouse aphidius for the green peach aphids every crop i'm releasing aphidius conlani even if i don't have aphids in there because you know that they can be hard to find, and then maybe your team members will, will walk down the rows and they won't notice them. Um, but those insects will track them down well before you. So you were, we're still using the three, sort of the triangle IPM strategy of cultural, biological, chemical, but we're leaning much more on the cultural and biological and minimizing the chemical. Correct, yes. Well, I mean, we, we don't have access to commercial chemicals. There's, there's no backstop. For us, there's no, oh, this is getting out of control. I'll go in with a bottle of salvamectum, for example. Um, if it gets to that point, then we've failed at our jobs, essentially, so catch it well before that. And it's taken some hard learnings in the past, I'll be honest. Um, but it, it can be achieved. And, you know, we can take 
tomato crops for a, a full 50 weeks of cultivation um, without having any significant pest or disease. Amazing. Switching gears to something that is a little bit counterintuitive when we're talking about organics. Data is a huge opportunity for growers is what I'm sort of seeing and hearing. Talk us through the green camel philosophy to approaching the data and how you use it in your production systems. Data is key for us. It helps us drive decisions on site. And and you'll hear the term data-driven growing quite often in the industry. Um, as growers these days, we have an amazing level of technology that's that's feeding data back into us. That could be things like climate registration, irrigation, uh, irrigation data, climate registration. And it's key for us to be able to understand all that information that's coming in, be able to interpret it correctly uh, and remove any potential growing bias from it, and then be able to implement that to a beneficial effect, primarily for our crops. Growers are increasingly becoming responsible for more and more hectares of, of glasshouse. Um, you often hear growers who are responsible for taking care of 5, 10, 15, even up to 20 hectares for, for some head growers around the country. And the industry is moving in the direction where ag tech and technology is going to be able to help growers operate larger and larger facilities. Because uh, as you and I know, and one of the terms we speak about in the industry at the moment, there is a shortage of technical-based growers in the industry. Um, so I'm not surprised that growers are getting asked to cover more hectares um, so that ag tech and technology will work. But one of the systems that works well for us on site is we've built a cloud-based platform um, which we utilize to operate our water treatment system. It takes the onus off of the operators to be manually doing calculations and, and helps them out with their time management, for example, where we would the operators would be putting in ECPH, titration, alkalinity results into this model. It will then spit out recommendations for you know how much uh, acid or alkali to put into a irrigation solution to balance the pH, for example, or it might um, spit out the amount of uh, additions required into the recirculating aquaculture system uh, to ensure that the, the fish have enough calcium and magnesium, for example. It's incredible. It just you're mentioning there the fish. It's it's amazing that you've almost got two separate systems working together and managing the two must be really challenging, particularly when you try and squeeze ag tech systems and monitoring systems into those two very sort of disparate production systems. In the elsewheres of ag tech land, systems integration and talking to each other is a real challenge and trying to get data from one into the other to build that decision support tool is a really big issue. Are you, are you seeing that similar? And has that sort of driven you to build, as you say, build your own systems? Essentially, yes. So we've, we've looked at off the shelf of systems that are available on the market and we've found they haven't necessarily been geared perfectly towards what we're doing. And I guess that's just built into the green camel system. You know, we, we are operating in a way that's pretty unconventional. There's, not many other facilities we've heard of that are, that are doing this kind of tech. Um, so we've had to you know, build from the ground up a lot of our platforms ourselves simply because there's nothing available on, on the market. And we have that challenges where we've tried to bring in uh, pre-refs, for example, which is the labor-based system. How do we get that to talk to our cloud-based system? Uh, and realistically, there's been no great solution there, or at least I'm not IT savvy enough to be able to figure it out. But yeah, IT guys do their magic. It's it's incredible the transition in skills required to run these systems in the past. And I think a lot of what people traditionally see as farming is 
you know, the old bloke on the tractor with dirty hands and grease and grime all over him. That's very quickly transitioning into people who do have systems, IT, business intelligence, knowledge, and understand how to integrate those systems. And I think moving forward, finding people with the IT knowledge, as well as the agronomic, you know, running of the greenhouse, that's a really challenging person to try and try and find. And I think that's, that's going to be one of the challenges, as you sort of mentioned, moving forward, finding those people and framing them in those systems. But I think as an industry, if we can highlight just how diverse the role of modern growers could be um, and, and be able to attract in, or at least make the industry sound attractive in that regard to university students, to high school students, I think we'll, we'll be better positioned in the future. Like you said, the, the idea of a farmer and, and a lot of people's mind at the moment is bloke out on his tractor. Whereas if you look through the protected cropping industry in particular, there's some fascinating people in this industry. I'm constantly inspired by a lot of my colleagues, colleagues in the industry. Um, and you know, when I was studying and I looked at glass houses, I remember walking into a glass house for the first time and thought, I could do this. This looks fantastic because I'd never come across that before. No, and it's it's one of the things that everyone in agriculture is vying for a limited pool of people. And yeah. the broad acres and the grazing folks of the world, they do a really good job at, at selling the lifestyle and selling that that um the you know, those systems to new grads. And I think it's it's a system that people are comfortable with and sort of understand. But when we talk are talking about protected cropping, it is a very different system and it is a very different way of producing food. And it, it doesn't really play into that sort of traditional view of what an agriculturalist does. So I think it's both a curse and a really great opportunity for us to target some people who otherwise wouldn't have thought about, you know, protect cropping or agriculture in general. So um, it's a challenge, but I think getting in front of the right people with our systems and, and sort of getting the word out there is a really good opportunity for us moving forward. In the near future, what are your goals and sort of any key projects that you've got on a green camel that you can tell us about? And what are you sort of excited about over the next sort of five, 10? Increasing adoption of organic produce for us is, is our primary focus currently. Um, we know that there's barriers for adoption of organic produce, primarily around the price point, purchase price. For the last few years, we've really focused on operational excellence and, and getting the facility to the point where we're humming along nicely and we're producing consistent yields. We've been operating our, our two-hectare expansion for four years now. We're at the point where that is running smoothly, consistent yields um, and and consistent expenditure per square meter as well. So the focus currently is, is around reducing, uh, reducing the, the cost of our produce on the shelf, essentially. So if we can, if we can bring down the input costs and supply at a cheaper rate, that means the retailers can get it onto the shelf and, and instead of running, let's say, a 50% price premium on conventional produce, start moving that down to a 20 or, or 30% price premium on, on conventional. And some of the work that we've done with the retailers has shown, and we call this pricing elasticity work, that when we drive our produce down to, say, a 20% premium on conventional, the amount of sales um, going into into the retailers' baskets is is much higher. The, the adoption of produce is easier for the consumer at that point, which makes sense because if you know, especially at the moment with inflation the way it is, if if you're walking into the supermarket and you need a pack of tomatoes, if you're looking at 
conventional produce, which is $3 a kilo, but organics, $5 or $6 a kilo, you're probably pretty likely going to take the convention. Whereas if you're looking at $3 a kilo for conventional or $3.50 for organic, it's much easier to make that decision. So that's our focus at the moment. With that, building more glass will be key. Economics of scale, essentially, if we can put more glass house down, that means we can reduce our input costs. No, it's, it's the way the world is moving in terms of trying to build a customer base in these high inflation, you know, cost pressure times. It's really a difficult place to play and any, you know, marketing differentiation you can have. And I think this is where organics plays a really important place for a lot of growers is that price differentiation and being able to charge a higher premium that really the produce deserves. Um, and I think, as you say, getting the consumer to come along on that journey is a really important pay- piece that we as an industry need to play to to sort of support the, the increased prices that are required to produce. And it's been a fascinating industry since I've been involved. We've seen in the retailers, for example, double-digit growth in the organic sector for the last five years. The, the rate of adoption of organic produce is vast. Yeah, and I think that the conversation around organics has really changed in the last five years from, you know, it was sort of seen as a bit of a hippie, trippy, wishy-washy, fringe type thing, no science evidence-based, you know, it's it's seen as sort of a, a, a niche sideline product. That's really transitioned and going around the traps and talking to growers who were very anti-organic. The conversation seems to have shifted a long way in the last couple of years and it is becoming a much more viable production system with the price of inputs going up and, you know, increasing uh, sustainability and ESG requirements of, of businesses. And I, that swing is not going to stop. And I think as we move into the future, sustainability and being able to tell the story around this whole environmental stewardship is going to buy a really big piece. Absolutely. I remember many years ago, the perception of organic produce to the consumer was that it was simply pesticide-free produce. So you could you know, pick up this powder of tomatoes and, and be confident that there was, that wasn't treated with any pesticides. So it's free of toxins from it and that's true. But the Australian organic industry, and, and particularly led by Australian Organic Limited, who's the peak body who represents organic in Australia, have done a fantastic job of communicating the other key aspect to organics, which is soil waste growing securing sustainable agriculture for Australia. Yeah, it's, it's the way of the future and the whole prospect around uh, sustainability is really interesting around how we can do it in a really pragmatic way that supports our industries and profitability of our industries whilst also transitioning into a low carbon ecosystem. We've seen particularly the fertilizer in the last two to three years really skyrocket. I think the last I heard ammonia nitrate was at $1,300 a tonne. I mean, there's a lot of discussion in the, in the industry at the moment of how do we reduce input costs? Automation will help in that going forward or essentially doing more with less. I think co-location will be something we'll see much more in the next 5, 10, 15 years. In a glass house down next to a paper mill, for example, where the waste heat and the waste CO2 generated from um, paper mill or, or pulp production could then be re to a glass house sector. No, interesting. And I think that's that's a really important sort of future that protected cropping can play, particularly around uh, sort of peri-urban agriculture and feeding some of these growing cities around the world. And I think Australia has a really great opportunity to become thought leaders in this space and to, to take sort of co-location and sort of 
almost symbiotic relationships that we can play with the broader community and sort of be seeing our place in a community in a broader sense is a really exciting place. And it sort of draws some parallels to your production system in some sense that the outputs of one can be the inputs of the other. And I think that's a really interesting idea. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on all the latest in protected cropping news.